I think you probably see why this is one of my favorite days here at Grace Fellowship every year. I just completed a book. It's a short book. Um, the name of that book is Rediscovering Catechism. It was written by Van Dyke. And um, I encourage all of you fathers to get this book and uh, read it, digest it, uh, turn it inside and out, and then give it to your wife and let her read it and digest it, turn it inside and out, and then spend time discussing it together. In that book, you'll find that the Scottish, during the Scottish Reformation, uh, the Scots were under uh, extreme peril from the English as they attacked Scotland again. And the commander of the uh, Scottish forces, uh, when they were drawn to battle, stood before his men, and uh, he walked back and forth saying nothing, just looking at them. And as he watched them in their ranks, he saw this one young man who just stood out in uh, his uh, stature, in his uh, disposition, uh, in his calm and uh, very uh, resolute spirit. Uh, he didn't show fear in any way, and uh, he seemed to be just above the fray, in a sense. And he was a young man, you know, very young, teenage boy. And all these battle-hardened men around him were really quaking. They were falling apart. They feared death. And this young man stood out in the crowd. As the commander walked through the ranks, he walked up to this young man, and he turned quickly on his heel and said, What is the chief end of man? And the boy spouted back, To glorify God and enjoy Him forever. And he looked at him and said, I knew you were a catechism man. Generations were made on the catechism. Generation of godly men who stood in peril, both spiritually and physically. They stood because they had been instructed and trained in the Word of God. That young man didn't fear death because he knew Christ. He knew Christ because his mother and his father, the elders of his church, had instructed him. And you may say, you may be visiting with us, you may say, what does a three-year-old, my son's three, he's standing up here and he's answering some of these questions. I have a daughter that's six. We have children all ages, two, all the way up to about ten represented up here today. You may say, what good is that? You know, they're young. Do they really even know what they're talking about? I say it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter if they understand it. You're building the framework mentally that turns their hearts and their minds to Christ. Let God worry about instructing them. And second of all, don't ever doubt how much they understand and know. If you ask me when should you begin to catechize your children, my answer gets younger every time. Uh, I'm of the opinion now, when they come home from the hospital or they're there just after they're born, begin to catechize them. Read the scriptures to them. Tell them Bible stories. That's catechism in itself. Tell them Bible stories. Make God the point of every story. Make His goodness, His righteousness, His mercy, His grace, His courage the point of every story in the Old Testament. And then teach them the New Testament based on that fact. And then teach them the doctrines of the Christian faith before they're old enough to understand them so that when they're like that young man standing in battle rank one day, their commanding officer might say, that one stands out. I knew he was catechized. That's the hope of our future. And we are the ones entrusted with that, dads. 
and elders of this church. We are entrusted with that. And so I just encourage you, um, go and study the history of the church where you find strong catechetical teaching. That just means to ask questions and expect an answer. That's all that means. Where that took place in the church, the church was strong, resolute, vibrant, gospel-oriented, conquering kingdoms with the gospel around the world. And as that has dwindled and waned, the church has dwindled and waned. We must get them young. We must get them young. John Calvin said, capture their hearts before their hearts know that there are other pursuits besides Christ. Capture their hearts young was his command. Catechism. The fruits are evident. The fruits in their little lives are evident. And uh, may they always be evident here at Grace Fellowship. I turn to Titus chapter 2. We're in, uh, this is just such a fitting message really. God puts all these things together. Um, and, I, and I want to uh, tell you that this, this message is not as, uh, uh, maybe it's not as uh, philosophical and academic as some may like. It, it's really practical. It's, front, it's bottom shelf stuff, which is good. I'm going to try to keep it that way. Titus chapter 2, verse 3 says, Older women likewise are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good. And that's our text for this morning. Last week we spoke about older men, elders, older men in the congregation, how that they are the foundation of the church. Without older men, the church suffers. You might even say the church would die in a local, in a local sense. That church dies, which doesn't have godly elder men. All right? The text last week drove us to a title for the message uh, that was the, the uh, older men, the foundation of the church, right? Today's title is the mothers of the church. The mothers of the church. Now, not young women. You're not the mothers of the church. You're mothering your little flock. But I'm speaking specifically to the mothers of the church those who are older women. That's who this, this is particularly addressed to, but all of us can learn from this. All of us can learn from it. All of us have responsibilities in this regard. Great women of the faith are to be praised, thanks, thanked, and emulated. There are women like Elizabeth, Elizabeth Elliot, who many of you uh, have read her books over the years. Susan Hunt, who was the women's director, women's ministries director for the Presbyterian Churches of America for years. Uh, K. Arthur and others who have produced books, study material, and life-on-life discipleship examples to the women of our day to show them how older women, they truly mother the church. They mother the young mothers and they mother the, the young children in the church. And these women are to be praised and to be thanked. Yes, this weekend I went home, many of you know I went home and was uh, given a great honor in my mind to speak to the uh, graduating class at the high school which I graduated from. And uh, that weekend gave us the opportunity. We left Thursday night. Friday we went down and spent most of the, the morning with Amy's grandmother, Granny as we call her. She's visited with us many a times. You've seen her. She comes and stays with us probably 
oh, a month and a month and a half out of a year. We love to have Granny come to our house. My children love Granny. My wife loves Granny, and I love Granny. Uh, Granny is a godly woman. As uh, her, her and the children were visiting, they were out walking around the yard looking at all the things at Granny's house. Uh, I was sitting on the couch there, and um, I, she had her, I was sneaking, she had her, uh, <laughs> she had her Bible and her devotional laying there. And so I just picked it up and opened that devotional. And in the pages of that devotional were inserted little leaves of paper where Granny had been writing her prayers, her prayers for her family, her prayers for me, her prayers for her great-grandchildren, her prayers for her church, her pastor. Granny had been studying the Bible, being devoted to the Lord. She's 82 now. And uh, she, she's not as spry as she once was. She's still pretty spry. But she's not quite as energetic as she once was. She's not able to do a lot of the things that she once was able to do. But she still sets a godly example for her children, her grandchildren, and now her great-grandchildren. Many of the ways that I think of this passage, older women, is thinking about our granny. We then, yesterday after graduation, which was in the morning, which I enjoyed uh, to get that over with and move on to uh, the family, was able to go spend some time with my grandmother. Uh, I've all my life referred to her as Mama Betty. That's a term of affection. Many, many of the women here don't like me to call them Mama's. Uh, but if I call you Mama, that's a that's a compliment, okay? I, uh, that's a that's a ter- term of respect and and uh, endearment in my book, anyway. So I call her Mama Betty, and uh, we went and spent time with her, and she was there, and you know, she's a lady who uh, had a husband who overshadowed her in many ways. Um, she was not heard as much as she has been seen in her life at the church. She uh, faithfully served for about 50 years as a Sunday school teacher of little children and young women. Uh, No one ever recognized my grandmother much. She's not a public person, so to speak. Um, She was always one step behind my grandfather, but she was always there. Wherever he went, wherever uh, the ministry took them, she went with them. And now he's passed away, and she still uh, acts that way. She's very, uh, if you're around her for any length of time, she's very... Uh, still very reverent, very loving in her tone and her care. I looked in and my children are piled up in her lap. She's reading them a book. Everybody else, all the adults are having a conversation over here. She's got the little children to herself. She's wanting to spend time with them, teaching them and training them. And uh, she enjoys them so much. And then we all gravitated in there where she was and she was telling us some things. And then we, I asked about her church and she was very complimentary. And I could tell, as I know my grandmother, something just... Something was uneasy about the church. I don't know what it was, you know. And so I just kept prodding and kept prodding. And she kept apologetically trying to get around it until finally she just admitted that she was real burdened for her pastor and their music minister, or music guy, she calls him, the music guy and the pastor. Because, this is why she was burdened, because the music guy came this last year from Missouri and his wife wouldn't move with him. And the pastor's wife is never seen. And she told me in so many words that the church is doomed. 
Because its leaders don't have women who emulate godliness and who exemplify godliness. See, she wasn't expecting these women to be up front teaching. She wasn't expecting them to be seen, I mean heard. She wasn't expecting them to be opinionated. She was expecting them to be seen, supporting their husbands, displaying godliness, being reverent. And her estimation of it is their church is doomed because of the lives of their pastor's wife and their music guy's wife. Older women are to be reverent in behavior, not given to slander, malicious gossip is the thought, or slaves to much wine, imprisoned by a desire for strong drink. They are to teach what is good. Titus 2 is a model for us, I said last week, of godly ministry. If we want grace fellowship to last for the centuries, this will have to be true of our church. You can't accomplish what I'm going to talk about today, what I talked about last week or the next couple of weeks. You can't accomplish that in the pulpit setting. You can't accomplish what I'm talking about in big Bible studies. You accomplish what we're discussing as a church, as I'm preaching and proclaiming to you as a church, you accomplish it one-to-one, one-to-two. You accomplish it on a small level known as discipleship. That's way, the way that you accomplish it. Now, as we look at Titus 2, let me put it in a little context before we dig out the particulars of this text. And I, I want to give you the context. You notice at the very beginning in Titus chapter 2, verse 1, it says, Titus, as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. This is a a call for the elders of the church to train and teach their people. I'm doing that today. I try to do that on a one-to-one basis with you as much as possible, small groups. I try to train what is it that we're to be doing, what is it that accords with godliness. And so uh, it's it's a community call. It's not an individual call that Paul is making. He's telling Titus, this is a community obligation led by the elders, the leaders. You're the pastor. You're one of the pastors, Titus. Teach them this. It's a command to teach. And then he drops down and talks about the foundation of the community. The older men better be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled. They better be sound in faith and love and in steadfastness. If not, your community will fail. Then he says, older women, you likewise. See, he makes them a type of foundation. In the American way of thinking, the older you get, the less responsibility you have at some point. You know, you're very responsible up till 65. But at that point, it's retirement. Here I come, right? Now, some people laugh about me in retirement, okay? At 30 years old, it's easy for me to say don't retire, right? Let me explain what I mean by that. I don't mean you can't retire from your secular vocation. By all means, work yourself out of a job as fast as you possibly can. What I'm speaking about is retiring permanently, both mentally and spiritually. That's what I'm talking about. And isn't that what invades our hearts and minds? Just be honest, okay? Be honest. There are young people in this room right now, like me, whose minds are captivated with how can I make enough money to get out of work and check out be gone, go on a permanent vacation, enjoy my life. And there are some of you right now who are at that age of retirement who are saying, all i got to do is survive another year, and then I can go play, do what I want to do. 
I've earned the right for my latter years to be easy. Now, let me just tell you, that is not biblical. Nowhere in the pages of this text, the Bible, will you find older people given the ability or the time or the permission to check out on their community at 65, 70, or 80. What you'll find here is a call to increased responsibility as you get older. Your responsibility moves from your little flock to the big flock. And a 30-year-old woman who has children at home and a husband, young husband, her life is to be given for that unit. And we're going to talk about that in a couple weeks. At 65 and 70, you're not to be given to your, only your husband. You and your husband are to be giving yourselves to the younger men and women in the congregation. You now become the mother and father's of the whole church. That means that when these young people act so bad, you don't sit over a cup of coffee and say, boy, this younger generation, they really got a problem, yang, yang, yang. No, you get up at four in the morning and pray over them and their souls and their families, and by six, you're at their front couch sitting with a cup of coffee with them discussing how they might be more like Christ. You gain more responsibility in the church of God the older you get, not less. And if we don't have that, the church will fail. This local church will fail. Don't hear me saying the church at large will fail. Christ is building His church. There are faithful men and women doing this process, and God by them is growing His church. And if it doesn't happen in this congregation, this congregation will last a while, it will be a flash in the pan, and it will die and go away. If you don't believe me, drive around the county sometime. Drive around the county and see the number of foreclosed signs on churches. Drive around the county and see the number of young churches that have no older people because they don't like old people. And drive around the county and see the number of old churches with old people who don't like young people. And you tell me what's going to happen in a couple of years the young church will burn out and be frustrated because they don't know what they're doing. The old church will be burned out and dead and they won't be doing anymore. So the church will die in that location. That's what I'm telling you. This is not back burner material. This is front burner material. And Paul entrusted it to the local congregation and to the elders of the church. He could have just as easily said, all you older Christians in Crete. He didn't do that, did he? He said, Titus... Teach them these things. He entrusted it to the church and to the church's pastors. And so we're here and we're looking at this text and that's a little bit of the book context. Turn back to first, hold your place in Titus and turn back to First Timothy with me because the Pauline context is also so important as we look at this. I just want to say as you're turning, aren't the children doing so well? They're all here. Behaving and listening. I'm proud of you children. Hey, I know it's hard to sit in big church. But it pays dividends. You don't understand everything Brother Carlton's talking about. That's okay. That's all right. There's foundations being laid in your lives. And I'm proud of you for being here. And I'm proud of your behavior. It's so good to see you here. First Timothy chapter 2. 
We look at verse 9. Paul says, Likewise also that women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly attire, but with what is proper for women who profess godliness with good works. Let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. I don't permit women to teach others uh, or to exercise uh, authority over men. Rather, she is to remain quiet. For Adam was formed first, then Eve, and Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived, and because of, uh, because, uh, excuse me, deceived and became a transgressor, yet she will be saved through the childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness and self-control. This is his first instruction, the earliest instruction we find in Paul's writings to women in the church. This is elevated status he's given women. Imagine first century, your first century Christians, an apostle of Christ dares to write to women. Radical. The liberals and the feminists in our day look at this and scoff and mock at us old, out-of-date Christians who dare to believe that Paul would actually speak to us and our women about their role in society. And yet I would say to them, he was the most progressive, godly man to ever walk the face of the earth outside of Jesus Christ. This is progressive. It's not repressive. The fact that he would even address a woman publicly sent shockwaves through the community. But it was a godly shockwave. Look what he tells them. Don't focus on your outward appearance, you see. Be submissive. And show that submissive by the way you dress, the way you speak, the way you learn, the way you operate in community. In other words, a godly woman is seen more than she's heard. Now, that's not, a, that's not anything against the ability of women to speak. That's just a fact. If you go back and think in your life to heroes in your life, women who were heroes in your life, they're women like my, my granny and my mama. Those are heroes. That's who you look at. That's who you say. I want to be like her one day. Men... Tell, tell your wife sometime what attracts you to these older grandma figures. And I guarantee you, women, you need to listen. That's what you're going to be one day by the grace of God as a grandma. And you'll want to look like her so that you're attractive to your husband. It's important that, that we see this in context. Paul says, be submissive, ladies. Be submissive. It's not repressive. It's your role. And it glorifies Christ. Look what he says in verse 15. We won't get into the controversy of this text. Simply put, there is something about bearing children which, which speaks against the curse. When you have children, basically what God is saying when He gives you children, families, He's saying to Satan, you didn't win. In the garden you wanted to kill humanity, and I'm reproducing humanity. Your very bearing children proclaims to the Satan that he has no chance, that he is doomed, and that our God is great and gracious. I think that is just phenomenal. Women, you are preaching the gospel if you obey Christ and if you bear children. Now, you say, well, I'm not able to have children. This isn't the only way you preach the gospel. 
It's just one way. Okay? And so God ain't given you the ability to have natural children. But you can be involved in the childbearing pain of others. You can be involved in the childbearing pain of adoption. You can be involved in other ways of preaching the gospel. But let's don't do away with the fact that what Paul says is submissive women having, godly women having children is a, is a speaking out against the curse. It's a true thing. So that's the first thing he says to women. Look over in chapter 3, verse 11. He then says to them, uh, speaking to women, right in the middle of talking about deacons, he says to these women, women likewise must be dignified. That word there is not in the original text. That's inserted by theologians who translated this scripture, and they want to make this a text about uh, deacons' wives. That's not what's in the original text, though. The original text reads literally women. The word used uh, is, is the word used for older women. So Paul, again, is addressing older women in the church in chapter 3, verse 11. It's amazing to me the mental apparatuses theologians will go to to get around uh, the, what the text says. Don't be afraid of what the Bible says. Paul is speaking to older women in this text, and he says... You are to be dignified. You're not to be slanders. You're to be sober-minded and faithful in all things. There was obviously a class of women, older women in the church, who fulfilled this role. They had compassion on others. They were women of compassion. And we see them in chapter 5. Paul references them as the widows of the church. We won't read that whole text. It's verses 1 through 16. But I will call your attention to the first two verses, you say, how are we to treat older men and older women as, look what it says. Do not rebuke an older man, but encourage him as you would your father. Older women, in verse 2, are to be treated like your mother. You see that? That is a promise statement from Paul. He has just extended the commandment, honor your father and mother. He's extended it from your mother and father physically to all mothers and fathers. He's, he's telling the church, love these older elders in your church and it will be well with you and you will dwell long in the land. That's what he's saying. What a beautiful picture of respect. and re Nothing in Paul's language speaks down to women. He honors them and elevates them as preachers of the gospel by their lives and their character, their submissiveness, their compassion, their involvement in the community. There were women in these churches who were on the rolls of the church. In other words, they were being paid. And they, what were they doing? They were taking care of children. They were training young mothers. They were teaching the Bible to women and children. They were involved actively in the church. I'll just be honest with you. My dream... My dream is that we not only have an orphanage at some point for the orphans of the world on our property out at McClellan, little children from all over being raised to the glory of God. That's not my only desire. I also want to have housing for senior women who are widowed, senior men who are widowers. Revolutionary thought. You ever wondered where the government came up with the idea for a nursing home? It's because in years past, churches did it. Churches took care of their elders. They revered them and they honored them. And God blessed them. 
What I'm saying is I can just see in my mind these children from all over the world that don't have mamas and daddies having the best mamas and daddies who have all day to spend with them, love them and teach them and sing to them and read the Bible to them and emulate godliness in front of them and, and be having their food taken care of and their housing taken care of and their medicine taken care of. And they're just, they're just living on the, on the role of the church. What a beautiful picture of the gospel, would you say? And what a way to train the next generation. What a way to train the next generation. By God's mercy and grace, may Grace Fellowship launch out into this. And would it push for this? But Paul calls for community. Don't retire and move away, Paul would say. When you're widowed, when you're widower, you have all the time in the world now to train the next generation. Give your life into it. That's what he would say. Titus 2 then comes, and he speaks of discipleship. Submission, compassion, community, and now discipleship is being spoken of. Who are these older women in verse 3? They are women who are childless, women who are widowed, women who do not have a family at home to raise. Now, it probably was around 60 years old because women had children naturally up to about 45 or so in that day. And then it would take 15 to 20 years to have that last one out of the home. And so 60 to 65. Now, in our day, it could be much younger. I said last week for the men, I'll repeat it again for the women. If you don't have children living under your roof, you are a father and mother to this congregation. You've assumed that role if your children are gone. And you have great responsibilities, ladies. What are the qualities of these women? They're to be reverent in behavior. This is the only place in the Bible that this word is used. They, they are to be, don't, don't get offended by this, literally that word is translated priestesses. They are to be holy in their living, set apart unto God. That's what the Greek word reads is priestess. She is to be holy as her God is holy. It's not a function of an office that's being spoken of here. It's a function of a character trait. She is to be a godly woman. A godly woman. One who ex exemplifies the holiness of God. Like Sarah, Peter said, who, who though Abraham was not the perfect husband, yet dared to call him Lord, a master. Gentle, humble, submissive. Not finding her quality and her worth in her outward appearance, but in her inward appearance, which is becoming more and more like Christ. That's what this word means. Reverent in behavior. Number two, there to not be malicious gossips. Diabolos is the word here. It's false accuser. Thirty-four times this word is used to describe Satan himself in the New Testament. So what is he saying? Don't be like Satan, women. The older you get, the more the temptation to be a malicious gossip. This isn't just running off at the mouth, saying some things that aren't right. That's bad enough, okay? But then when you go into the area of tearing down a person's character, wrongly or rightly, and then going into slander, which is speaking lies about a person, you have now begun to act like your father, who is Satan, the father of lies and all who lie. That's what John said. So older women are not to be like this. They're not to display this 
godless desire to run down and to tear down the character of others. The third characteristic we see is they're not slaves to much wine. The older a person got in the day of Paul, the more they were given to, to drink. Uh, and, and he is warning them, look, I'm not forbidding the drinking of wine. That's what he says, basically. They're not slaves to it. I'm saying don't be controlled by it. And women, if you want to know if you're given to wine, if you're a slave to wine, it's simple. Women or men or anybody for that matter. The word here means that you are a prisoner. It means that literally to be held against your will. It's one thing to be in moderation enjoy a glass of wine. And it's a whole nother thing to have to have wine and strong drink to survive the day. Paul's saying don't be imprisoned by this stuff. Why? Because at that point you'll be emulating and teaching them a characteristic which is ungodly. You'll also be debilitated from teaching them. Can you imagine trying to train somebody in godliness while drunk? It'd be impossible. And you'd be disobeying Ephesians 5.17 which says to be drunk on the Holy Spirit, not on wine. He's not outlawing the drinking of wine. He's saying don't be imprisoned by it. Don't be taking control against your will by this substance and I would say any substance. Moderation is the call. In food, in drink, in play, in work, moderation is the call here of the older woman. This is her character. And I want to say what is her main responsibility as we close to teach younger women and train them to do what is good. He says they are to teach what is good and train younger women. Beginning in verse 4. We're going to get there Next week, talking about actually the younger women. So how are we to train them? Well, encouragement is the idea here. That might not be enough because biblical encouragement is so different than what we do. This isn't a data boy. This isn't an older woman walking by every now and then patting a young woman on the back and saying, boy, your kids are doing good. Keep it up. The word literally means to cause someone to cause someone to be sound in mind. To cause them to be sound in mind. How do you cause somebody to be something? How do you learn somebody? You ever heard of that, that play on words? We talk about teaching people. The Bible talks about learning people. Not good English, good Bible talk though. Learn them. They're, what he's saying to you older mothers of the church Learn these young women. Learn their character so that you might teach them. Learn their weaknesses that you might strengthen them. Learn Christ and His Word that you might implant it in their hearts for the generations to come. Learn them. And then they will be caused to have sound minds. Women are given... I'm going to get in trouble for this, I guess, when I get home especially. Women are given. They're prone to some things, and Paul is addressing it. The malicious gossip statement is given to women for a reason. And that's not 100% men gossip too. I know all that. But there's a reason why he doesn't tell women not to be strikers. He tells men not to be strikers and brawlers. He doesn't tell women that. Because we're given to anger, fighting. That's our nature. We're bruisers. 
Women are much nicer and kind in their disposition and personality often, and yet they can be so evil with their tongue. And you get them together, and they really can get bad, and Paul's warning against it. The second warning he gives to them that is for them particularly is this one here about training and about being sound in mind, sensible, self-restrained is the idea. Do you know women are given to drama? I, I know it's revolutionary, isn't it? I mean, our culture recognizes it. They market many dramas in the middle of the day, not to men, but to women. I heard a woman not long back describing her soap opera. I thought it was a real situation until she put the title of the soap opera with it. She was in this deal. I'm like, man, she, somebody's got serious problems. We need to reach out to them. One was on Young and the Restless. <laughs> Drama, given to it. And break out into hysteric crying. My mom used to watch that stuff. And I'd come in, she'd be crying. I'd be like, Mom, you all right? Well, you know, so and so, and as the world turns. I'm like, you got to be kidding. <laughs> not sound, not sober in mind. It, separating reality from fiction is a hard deal sometimes. Drama, emotions, emotions. Thank the Lord for the emotions of our lives, but sometimes God help us <laughs> as we try to decipher that emotion because it's up here. And really, whatever's going on is down here, right? Older women, you've been there and you've done that. You've faced hormones. You've faced life changes. You've, fa you've been in their shoes. You need to be with them. So you might say to them, hey, I'm 70 now. When I was 28, I thought life was coming to an end because I burnt the toast too, but I'm, it didn't come to an end. I survived. I'm 70, Okay? It's going to be all right. Let's think sober-mindedly about this. Not just over those silly examples, but over the bigger examples of life when the husband says something out of the way and leaves, storms out for work, and she thinks they're getting a divorce. And that older woman says, well, if my husband did that at times, you're going to make it. Trust God in His Word. Believe what it says. Live what it says. Follow my example. What is the key to what I'm telling you today? You can't do it in these pews. You can't do it at a weekly Bible study. You can only do it in their living rooms, in their kitchens, as they're raising their children. You can't do it from a distance, men, women of the church. You can't do it from a distance. It's hands-on. It's dirty. People get hurt. Things get said that are inappropriate. Forgiveness has to be given. Community happens. Community happens. Real life happens. Isn't that what we want? Isn't that what we would desire? And let's don't use this excuse. Well, I don't think young women really care about all that. Sure they do. Sure they do. They may not know how to ask for it, but they want it. They all want it. And so I'm begging the older women to be mothers of this church. I'm begging the older men to be fathers for this church. Get in the lives of these young men and these young people. Get in our lives. It's messy. We're all messed up in some areas, obviously. We ain't got it all figured out. Help us. 
Help us. You say, my life, what does it matter? As I close, let me tell you this. We'll pray and we're gone. Robert Murray McShane, great Scottish pastor, died early, died at 29. He lived a lifetime before then. He was preaching one Sunday. He finished, and this older woman down front in her 80s was just weeping, just weeping. He went to her. He'd been preaching about the gospel call to mission. He went to her, and he said, what is the problem? What's wrong? He loved this lady. She said, my life's been worthless. I've done nothing. I've lived in the same house. For 50 years, I had one husband. I had six children. Nobody's here. I'm by myself. All I can do now is barely get to church. What have I really done? What good have I been? And McShane said, you've been the best of goods. Where are your sons? She had six sons. Where are your sons? She began to mention the continents they were on. He said, and what are they doing? She said, they're living and dying for Jesus Christ and his gospel. He said, do you ever hear from them? She said, oh, they send me letters of how people are being saved under their ministries. And McShane said, you are reaching the world. You have been worth something. And your six boys, her six boys were living a life far reaches of the world. She never saw them. And yet the kingdom was being expanded because of her. This little woman, 80 years old, never left her home. She lived in her home her whole life, never worked a public job, gave herself to her husband and six boys. And now the world was being changed. And McShane said, you're reaching the world. Ladies, don't you want to die that way? Don't you desire to die saying, my children are reaching the world. Our church is reaching the world. The younger generation is strong and vibrant. Our children are catechized. They're moving out in the gospel mission and ministry. And I hadn't gone anywhere, but I've been everywhere. And the world is being changed because of the foundation that is the older men and women of Grace Fellowship. I'm hungry for that day. I believe that's the day this church becomes what it dreams to be. We'll be commissioning people all over the world. We commission a few right now, a little trickle. There'll be a flood of people headed out to do missions. If we'll live to this gospel community call. Now, I've preached it. We've got to live it. It's not enough to say it. We've got to go do it. We've got to mess up. We've got to ask forgiveness. We've got to keep going in the grace of God. Let's pray. Father, the encouragements have been strong and at times probably invasive and there are many here who have a hundred excuses why none of this stuff works and it's not true. And yet, God, I pray you would silence that lie from Satan and that you would begin to grow in their hearts this true abiding uh, feeling and assurance of the, of, the, of the fact that this kind of community is essential and it does exist, and it will exist through your grace. Oh, God, please make us a church that exemplifies the strength of the gospel through our community. We love you, and we praise you. It is in your name that we pray. Amen.